So I'm going to be reading um, Luke 5, 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets catch nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But your word but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, and who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus cleanses the leper. While he was still in one of the cities, there came, there came a man full of leprosy. And when Jesus saw him, he fell to his face and begged, him, and begged him, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be, I will, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy felt, felt and, and immediately the leprosy left him. And he, char- and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering of your, for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for proof, of, for proof to them. But now, even more, but now even more the report about him went, went aboard. And great crowds gathered to hear him and, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he, but he would withdraw to distolerate places and pray. heals a paralytic. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. The amazement seized all of them, and glorified, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today.
All right, lastly, Jesus calls Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Going to college for my undergraduate degree, I worked at Starbucks for a number of years. And the particular store I worked at had been around for uh, quite some time. I think it was like 25 years. And so the store was in desperate need of a remodel. And so during the time that I worked there, the store closed down for a week for this remodel. Uh, for about a month or two months in advance, uh, we tried to tell people in every way we can think of that this store was closing. We had signs everywhere. We had a sign on the door. We had a sign where people would stand in line. We had signs uh, on either side of the cash registers. We had a sign at the bar where people were, were making drinks and handing off drinks. And then on top of that, we told uh, every customer after they ordered their drink, we said, um, here's your change or your credit card back, and uh, don't forget, uh, we'll be closed for a week. Uh, but this just goes to say that signs aren't always enough. Right? And let's face it, how many coffee drinkers do we have? Right? Serious coffee drinkers. I'm a very serious coffee drinker, and I know... When I wake up in the morning and I haven't had my caffeine, I'm not quite awake, right? So when, when we closed as the store, um, it was my job for the first two days to stand in front of the store and to apologize to people <laughs> and to hand them a, a, a complimentary free cup of coffee. Uh, to give you an idea of how many people forgot, in the first three hours on the first day, uh, I went through 15 gallons of coffee. Right? A lot of people forgot. And, uh, and at first, uh, my strategy was is I, I just kind of sat on the side. See, I'm an introvert, and so I like being in my comfort zone. I don't like approaching people if I really don't have to. So I was happy just sitting at the side of the store with my coffee and just hanging out. And I would watch these people go through this procedure over and over and over again, and it was really sad. Uh, people would park their car, they'd get out, and they'd start walking across the, uh, the street... Uh, and, and not recognize what's going on, completely oblivious. And for those, uh, it was the first, in the first night, uh, they had completely demolished the store. By that morning, they had a jackhammer, right, digging up the cement. You guys know a jackhammer, it sounds like a cannonball, just constantly pounding into the floor. But none of this broke their attention. They were determined. They were determined to get to their coffee. And I'd watch them come up, and they would get to the door and then they would realize it was locked, and then they would lift up their eyes, and they would see inside, and then I saw it. Their dreams of lattes, cappuccinos, frappuccinos, espresso, all of them washed away at the sight of this just broken store. And I saw this enough that I said, this is just sad. I have to, I have to get to people before they get to the door. But being an introvert, I, I played it safe at first. I thought maybe I'll do something to get their attention where I'm at. I'll bring them to me. And so I actually built this tower of Starbucks cups. Right, it's boredom, too. So I built this, this tower of Starbucks cup that was about as tall as me. 
But people wouldn't acknowledge it. Eventually, I realized the only way I was going to get their attention before they got to the door is if I actually walked over to them. I had to get out of my comfort zone. I had to actually go to them. I had to bring a cup of coffee to them, to their car or wherever, and I had to say, oh, sorry, we're closed. Right? And that meant getting out of my comfort zone, and that's, that's not always an easy thing for us to do. Right? And I believe uh, this is a very interesting analogy to how many Christians approach the call to make disciples. We have this hope that people will just come to us. We have this hope that, that people will just come through the door of the church or just come to our house door knocking and say, listen, I want to hear about Jesus. We have this hope that we can just sit in our comfort zone and it'll just happen all on its own. But it's not the case. That's not the way that Jesus demonstrated making disciples. And so today I want to talk about that. I want to look at how Jesus made disciples, how he taught his disciples to be catchers of men. Uh, but won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for our youth, and thank you for all these hearts and minds here that are here today, Lord, just to be open to what you have to say. And I ask, God, that you open our hearts up, you open our minds up, that you let us be able to just get a glimpse of your word, just to be able to understand what you have to say to us this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we have an awesome youth group. I am, uh, I'm, it's great to see them involved up here leading worship. And uh, we had a, a couple of our youth uh, read us to us a good chunk of Luke chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be studying. Uh, and the very first thing uh, they talked about was when Jesus calls a bunch of fishermen to become disciples. Right, and I want us to, to, to notice that Jesus says two things to them. The very first thing he does is he tells them how to catch fish. Right, he tells them, uh, you're doing this, I want you to do it this way, I want you to do it differently. Right? And Simon responds to him. He says, Lord, we've been out here. We've been trying it. We're trying all this different stuff. We've been out here all night, and we're not having a whole lot of success. But at your word, I'll give it a shot. It turns out Jesus was right. right? He, they were, their boats were overflowing. And this, and this demonstrates Jesus was telling them, I know what it takes to be a fisherman. And then he comes to his second point, his second thing he says to them. He says, I will come follow me and I will make you catchers of men. He makes, his, he makes his intentions very clear with the disciples at that moment. He says, I am here to make you catchers of men. That's what it means to follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. That you have a job. Right? And he, so he first teaches them how to catch fish. He demonstrates, I know what I'm doing. And then he invites them and says, come follow me. We won't be catching fish anymore. We'll be catching men. And so I believe the next three events that, that Jesus said, or that Luke shares with us, uh, I, I think they paint a picture of how Jesus was teaching these disciples to make disciples. I think Jesus was, was educating them on, on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want to keep two things in mind, though, or, or I want us to be aware that these verses say two things to us. 
The first one is it says who Jesus is. It says the authority he has. When he goes and he heals people and we forgive sins, those are certain things that are just traits of Jesus. It says something about who he is. And we should stand back and be in awe of who he is. But the second thing I think, and this is really what I want to address today, Jesus is, is demonstrating how to be a catcher of men. He's demonstrating to us this is what it takes. And so as we read these stories and we think about these stories, I don't want us to just sit in the back and just applaud Jesus. I want us to recognize that he's saying, follow me in doing this. And so that, that is the two things. And so we come to this very first event, uh, this first thing he does right after calling uh, the disciples. Right, he cleanses a leper, and this shows us how does Jesus treat the outcast. And I want you to, to realize that he cleans the leper by touching the leper. Right, he goes up and he touches the leper. Um, he is treating this individual in a way that no one else treated him. Completely different. In order to understand this, we have to understand what leprosy meant for someone who had it. It wasn't just a physical disease. The, the burden of leprosy wasn't just the physical effect. It was a lot of it. And perhaps the worst part was what it did to someone socially. Not only was, they, were their, was their body just dying and just being destroyed by this disease, but on top of that, they were forced by law to separate themselves from all their family, all their friends, all their community, their employment. They were forced to separate themselves from everything. They were banished. They were outcasts. They had to stay away from the healthy. So when Jesus goes up and touches this man, he is making a very, very strong point. He's saying, you are not an outcast to me. You are not banished in my eyes. I have not forgotten you. This says something about how Jesus treats the outcasts, the rejects. How Jesus cares for the people who the rest of society rejects. Jesus' love was not exclusive. So here's a thought to have in the back of your mind. Who are the lepers of today? Who are the people who are banished from the healthy and the normal? Because for us to be a disciple of Jesus means that we have to go out, serve, love, care, and accept those individuals. We cannot forget them like everyone else. Be of catcher of men means we love the way he loved. And so this is one of the first things Jesus did, and this is starting to grow his popularity. Right? In verse 15, it says, Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Jesus' popularity was growing. He was quickly becoming known as the friend of the outcast. And this takes us to the next event. He heals the paralytic. As the crowds has grown and he become popular, uh, people were not only wanting to see him and to see these miracles, but people were also very much interested in his teachings. What was Jesus about? Because everywhere, everything he did, everywhere he went, he was constantly teaching. Right? And so in verse 17, just to give, give an idea of what I mean by this, uh, it says, on, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village, right? These were the big, the big thinkers of the day, the big religious hotshots of the day. And they're coming from all these different villages to hear Jesus teach. But now think about this. In the midst of this sermon, in the midst of his teaching, uh, these group of people are desperate to get this paralytic man to him. 
that they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him right in front of Jesus in the midst of his teaching. Now, this is really interesting, and you've got to think about this uh, at two different levels. First, uh, what does it say about uh, Jesus' popularity, his fame, his reputation, that these individuals know that in the middle of this theological teaching, where he's teaching to other great thinkers and leaders alike, that they could just drop this paralytic man down and feel comfortable knowing how Jesus was going to react. Right? I mean, what does this say about the popularity, about who Jesus was known to be? These people had a, some confidence that Jesus was, was not going to reject them at that moment, banish them at that moment. And the second thing that's interesting is that Jesus actually responds to these people. He actually heals the paralytic man. It would be very easy to imagine this great charismatic teacher, right? this great speaker, this people who all these other leaders and teachers want to hear, uh, just completely forget the paralytic person. In the middle of their sermon, right? in the middle of their teaching, this is just not on the side of the road, this is in the middle of Jesus' teaching. I think this says a lot about uh, what Jesus' values are. He was not just here just to talk about God's word, but he was here to demonstrate it. He was here to show it. He was here to act on it. I think this is a really, really, really important message for many of us Christians today. Sometimes we become so focused on learning, on thinking, on reading, on talking, uh, that we forget to serve. Another way of saying it is that we become so heavenly minded that we become no earthly good. Actually, I would say this is one of the biggest criticisms I have of myself. Sometimes I'm so absorbed in my own thoughts and my books that I I totally forget to, 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 to notice the paralytic people around me. Jesus healing the paralytic man demonstrates that Jesus wants his disciples to be people of action and not just talk. And so now we come to this third event. Now the third event after calling his disciples is he calls Levi, this tax collector, to follow him. And the significance of this becomes a bit clearer when we understand how a tax collector was perceived. That profession, being a tax collector, was a socially known it was a job of sinners. They were sellouts. Right? They, would, they, were, they were Jews who were then working for Rome to go and collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And it was pretty well known that every tax collector lied and took more than they needed. So when Jesus calls Levi to follow him, Jesus is calling a socially known sinner to follow him and to become a disciple. Right? And to, to get this, it's like, um, usually when, when people, when a, high, a holy man, someone like Jesus, when a great teacher uh, collected disciples, they collected the best of the best. That's usually what they did, because having disciples, who you were teaching, said a lot about who you were. For many people, it was actually an ego boost. It's kind of like colleges today. I often say that a college's reputation is only as good as the students they have. In the same way, so when Jesus, calls this, this, uh, when Jesus calls Levi to follow him, it would be like Harvard taking in a high school dropout. We have to wonder, other colleges would start to wonder. Other colleges would start to think, and we're like, what is, this, what is Harvard doing right now? 
And I love it. The text clearly says that these teachers began to grumble. They were grumbling. In verse 30, uh, and they asked Jesus this question. In verse 30, they say, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I want you to understand, this, this is more than just Levi. Um, in that day and age, uh, people had this view, there's this, and it might have been a religious wisdom of the day, we might say, uh, that if you were a leper, if you were uh, physically disabled, if you were blind, if you had some kind of a physical illness, that was caused by sin. And Jesus and John actually addresses this issue and says that's not true. But that was something people thought in that day. And so when Jesus is asking, why are you associating with these kinds of people? He's not just talking about Levi. It's not one person. It's all the people he's been working with, walking with. All the people he's been associating with up until this point. And these other religious leaders are like, what are you doing? Holy people like us don't associate with people like that. That's not what we do. And they, and these other Pharisees and these Sadducees and these teachers of the law, they, they had a particular idea of what sin was. They thought that it was contagious. They thought if you hung around somebody who was a sinner long enough, you would just get infected and become sinful like that. Like if it was some kind of a cold. And to be clear, there's actually some wisdom behind that. Paul, Paul makes this point a number of times uh, in some of his letters where he says, we Christians have to be constantly aware and on guard and examining how are we being influenced by other people. We need to be regulating that and being aware of how we are being influenced by other people. Nevertheless, Jesus was amongst these individuals. Right? Jesus was breaking these social boundaries that, 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 that righteous teachers don't hang around uh, uh, sinners and sick and outcasts like this. And, they, they, and these other individuals are, are becoming afraid. They're wondering. They're curious. They're not sure what to think. And that's why they ask Jesus this question. Why do you associate with people like this? Why are you hanging out with them? That doesn't make any sense. I think Jesus' response explains a lot of the actions that he has, he has been, a lot of his actions throughout his ministry. Particularly these last three events. Um, Jesus answered them, those who are sick are well, uh, sorry, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He is here for the sick and not for the healthy. So he's going out of his way to be amongst those people. And I want to make a a side note, though. It's just a, a personal thing I have to add every time I read this passage. Uh, I don't think Jesus really thought there were healthy people, spiritually healthy people amongst, amongst them. I mean, he's saying this to the other Pharisees, but we also know, he, he says the Pharisees are hypocrites. Right? So I don't actually think uh, he thought that there were really spiritually healthy people. I think he actually just believed there were people who thought they were spiritually healthy. But beyond that, uh, uh, Jesus was here to call people to repentance. And so that's who he had to be amongst. That's who he had to be hanging out with. Jesus associated with the people. He hung out with the people. He went to Starbucks with the people who needed him most. And so one of my goals as a youth pastor uh, is, is to teach what I call the ego de lego view of the world. 
uh, there is this, uh, if, you, if you read through the Sermon on the Mountain, um, this, this, this is a Greek expression, ego the lego, and it, uh, this is something Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mountain. If you recall, in the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus addresses and talks about a number of these social issues, a number of these, these moral issues, ethical issues. He talks about adultery. He talks about uh, remarrying. He talks about love. He talks about murder. And at each one of these, in the very beginning, he says, you have heard it said. And he goes on to explain the wisdom of that day, the wisdom of that time. Right? You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy." And this is, he's saying, this is the wisdom. This is, what people, this is what people are telling you right now. And then almost each of them, he says, but I say, but I tell you something differently. I have a different way of looking at these problems. I have a different way of looking at people. I have a different way of looking at the world. And that phrase, but I say, in Greek, is ego de lego. And so with the youth... Uh, there will be times where we come to a certain or a particular issue, and I'll say, here's an ego de lego view of this. Here is a place where Jesus looks at this differently than the rest of society. Here's a place where he sees it differently, and he is inviting us to see it differently with him. And I believe when Jesus says, I have come for the sick, that is an ego de lego view. He has a different view of what it means to be a disciple. He has a different view of what it means to be a teacher, a high teacher. Right? Usually teachers, they wanted to disassociate themselves. They wanted to separate themselves from the sick and the sinners of the world. They were up here on the social hierarchy, and they don't need to be people down here. And Jesus is making it very clear, you got it all wrong. We're here for people that are down here. Jesus' view is different on these issues. Right, so, and I want us to think about this, that as disciples, we're called to that same standard. We're, we're called to think of that way, to think of this differently as well. If we disassociate ourselves, if we disassociate ourselves with, with the sinners and the sick people and the outcasts of society, if we just want to uh, uh, huddle together and just be in our own little Christian circle and communities, if we completely separate ourselves from the rest of the world, we become absolutely useless to the rest of the world. And I think Jesus doesn't really want that of us. Our mistake uh, as disciples is we sometimes read Jesus' words and we clap our hands and we say, keep it up, keep going. And I say, as I said, it is very important as Christians we stand in awe of who he is. But we make this mistake of not doing anything with that. Jesus was very clear when he said, follow me. He didn't mean follow me and just watch him do things from the back and never do anything with it. He wanted us to be changed by him. Too often we do the wrong thing with the Bible. Right? We read it and we read it and we read it and we memorize it and we memorize it and we memorize it. We highlight it, which is all good. Right? It's important that we just study God's word. But we make this mistake is that we leave it at that. We don't act on it and we don't do anything with it. We read it and we read it and that's it. Um, Kyle Eidelman gives a great illustration of this in his book, Not a Fan. And I want to I read this, this, this illustration. 
He says, imagine that my family goes on a missions trip together for a month. And we have a young married couple come and house it for us. Before we leave, I give them a notebook with 10 or 12 pages of fairly detailed instructions for taking care of the house and pets. I tell them when to water the plants. I write out where to find the food for the cat and how much food to give it. I remind them to get the mail. I explain the trash day is early on Thursday morning. I inform them that the downstairs toilet overflows and clearly state where the shutoff valve is, just in case. When I give them the notebook, the couple commits to doing what it says. Now, I want you to imagine I come back and all the plants are dead. The garage is full of trash. The toilet has been overflowing for days and the basement is flooded. Then I look in the backyard, and there's this little gravesite where the cat has been buried. Then the couple, I just, had a, I just heard an oh. <laughs> then the couple who has been house-sitting comes up and explains how helpful the notebook was. In fact, they have memorized certain sections, and I can see where they have highlighted different areas. They informed to me they went over certain parts of the notebook every night before going to bed. What am I going to say? I'm going to say, away from me, you evildoers. They may have spoken words of commitment, but there is no evidence that those words meant anything. We can study how Jesus befriends sinners. We can study what he says to them. We can memorize those parts. We can study how Jesus called people to repentance. We can memorize those words. But if we actually are not doing it, then we really cannot call ourselves disciples. I really appreciate the words of the philosopher, theologian, and writer Kierkegaard here. He says, The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well the minute we understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. For Jesus, doing it, following him, acting like him, that's what makes us disciples. That's what makes us catchers of men. Now, I want to make something very, very, very clear. Uh, I'm not up here talking because I believe uh, I have figured this out and I'm doing it right, and I know, uh, I, I know this all too well. Uh, quite the contrary. I actually believe that God has really hit me really hard with this stuff recently because I am not doing it well at all. I think God has called me to a different kind of repentance. He's called me to start taking my faith more seriously and start being more bold with it. I believe God has called me to this passage because I think it demonstrates quite well what it means for us as Christians to begin to step out of our comfort zone and start associating ourselves and hanging out with and loving and caring for the people that are sometimes very uncomfortable and hard to do. With that being said, I want to say there are two implications I want us to learn from this passage today. First, in order to be catchers of men, we have to actually be amongst other people. We can't disassociate ourselves from them. We can't separate ourselves from them. We can't only just uh, meet as a church, and, and and that's our only social time. We have to be amongst them, as Jesus was. 
Right? We can't, and neither can we just as a, as a church just sit back here and just hope that people are just going to start walking in the door. Or, 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 be, or, or better or worse yet, think that it's up to the pastors uh, to do the ministry for everyone. Right? As, as to be a catcher of men means that it is each of us take this individual responsibility that we are, are to go out and to make uh, disciples of other people means we have to be amongst other people. We have to associate with other people. We have to go to Starbucks with other people. We have to talk to them, whether we know them or whether we don't. Part of what the study has challenged me to do, and this is a big challenge as an introvert, and part of what this study has challenged me to do is to place myself uh, in situations where I can or I am obligated uh, to talk and be around people who are not from the church. And this is a particular challenge, I think, as a pastor, because my job is to be around people in the church. But I have to figure out ways. I have to think creatively, how do I get out of that bubble? I ask you, how can you be like Jesus and walk amongst the crowds? The second thing I think what this, uh, these events teach us is that Jesus was always teaching God's word. He was constantly, everywhere he was going, everything he was doing, he was constantly teaching God's word. Um, but he was acting on it. He was demonstrating it. He was communicating God's word, not just with his mouth, but with his actions as well. When he calls Levi and has dinner with him, when he, when he heals the paralytic, when he cleanses the leper, this is Jesus demonstrating and teaching God's word with his actions. His actions demonstrated his words. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about God's word, when we, when we want to communicate the good news, I think our actions have to be matching our words. They have to go hand in hand. We have to be demonstrating God's love as well as speaking about it. I think uh, Francis of Assisi summarizes this thought really well, uh, but I have to give a minor disclaimer. There's a... Uh, a lot of people attribute a certain phrase to him that he actually never said. I think it's a really good phrase, but uh, the, the first thing is that he's, uh, people think he said, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. I think it's a fabulous phrase, but uh, he never said it. But this is what he actually he said. He said, no brother should preach contrary to the form and regulation of the Holy Church. And keep in mind, when he's talking about the Holy Church, he's not talking about like a physical institution. He's talking about the hands and the feet of Jesus in action. And so we should always preach. We should never preach contrary to what, what Jesus is, the movement of Jesus is still doing. And then he says this, all the friars, like Christians, should preach by their deeds. Make sure your actions are matching your words. Make sure you're not just talking about it, but make sure you're doing it. Right? And I think behind this, there's this idea that we communicate in more ways than just our mouth. We communicate with body language and facial expressions. And on top of that, uh, as, as Christians, when we communicate the message in the gospel, I think we can do that in more ways than just our mouth. We can be doing that with our lives and our everyday actions. So make sure you are communicating God's word not just with your mouth, but with your actions as well. And I want to add uh, to that. I think Jesus is teaching the gospel constantly, uh, and we have to be doing that too, but I also think we also have to have Jesus' intentions when we do it. 
Sometimes we can get caught up in our own ego or our own self-righteousness or our own glory or whatever. And we start to think the purpose of teaching and the purpose of doing these good things and the purpose of all this is to show how good we are or to sound how smart or to look how smart we are to show other people how smart we are or whatever it is. But fundamentally, I believe Jesus did all of this stuff because he cared and loved for people. He had a care and a love for people. And I think we have to match that. We have to have that same kind of care and love. And that should be the reason why we do these things. But for many of us, we have a, a great enemy. Right? We have, this, we have this, this big enemy. And the reason why we, we are not uh, catching men the way that Jesus has called us to, the, way, the thing that gets in our way is our fears. Sometimes we have a fear of, of how we will be socially perceived. Sometimes we have a fear of how it might change, you know, if I bring up this conversation with this person, how it might change the dynamic of my relationship. We might have a fear about our job, or we might be, we are allowing ourselves to be afraid of things. And that makes us want to stay in our comfort zone and not do that, not, not go out and, and be catchers of men the way Jesus has called us to. I believe we have these fears, and those are the things that's holding us back. And I think it's really interesting that when Jesus tells the first disciples, he says, come follow me, be, catch, be catchers of men, the first thing he says is, do not be afraid. As if he knows uh, being a catcher of men and fear go hand in hand. So he says right off the bat, don't be afraid, you will be catchers of men. But I want to give an illustration of what exactly this fear makes us look like. Before I do, let me, let me first talk a little bit about, uh, we, we know the Olympics happened last year. How many of you guys watched the Olympics? Right, they're all happening in London. Um, there is this particular event, um, got a slide for it, I think. Yeah, there's this particular event, uh, it's, it's a kind of gymnastics, where it's a girl-only event, where these girls get on these balancing beams, uh, and then they do perform all kinds of flips and all kinds of stuff crazy, and they're way up in the air when they're doing this. All right, it's really scary stuff, uh, but it's amazing to watch, and I want you to imagine, uh, this is Jesus. Jesus is one of these girls up here, and he's doing all these flips, and he's doing all these crazy stuff, and then he says the most uncomfortable thing possible to us. He says, come follow me. Come do it too, and we all get a little scared, and this is what we do. We come to our balancing beam right over here, and and as we begin to step to it, as we begin to stand on it, we begin to start to look down. We look how far down it is. And we get a little scared. And we feel extremely uncomfortable. We're looking down and we're thinking how embarrassed we might be. So we start to lower it down. And get to a place we feel a little better about ourselves. And then we start to think even this is a little scary. And before we know it, We're doing this. And Jesus has called us to be like this, but this is us. This is what we look like. <laughs> and we might feel good about ourselves because, you know, we, we go to church. We go to Bible studies. Uh, we have Christian t-shirts and, and bumper stickers. and uh, We might even say we're Christian on Facebook and I make little Christian posts. And, but when it comes down to it, we're, we just like our comfort zone. We don't, we don't want to do anything uncomfortable. We don't want to get to a place that makes our life start to look a little messy. 
And I want you to think, what do you think Jesus is thinking about us looking like this? Someday we're going to die, and we're going to get off the balancing beam, and we're going to stand before our judge. I think these girls stand before their judge. What are we going to say? And I'm not talking about salvation here. I firmly believe that we are saved by grace. Through faith, right? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm just saying we're going to be looking in Jesus' eyes. And we're going to look at what he did. And then we're going to look at what we did. What are we going to do? We're going to be like, yes! Look how awesome I was! Right? Or, or are we going to look, and are we going to look, and then we're going to look and say, oops. Like, are we going to realize that was really stupid of us? Right, to, to, be, to be acting uh, so afraid. I think Jesus has called us to a much higher standard, and I think uh, we're a bit afraid to do that. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently is how important our mission is. If we take Jesus seriously, if he is legit, if, as Cliff has been saying these last two weeks, if he really did rise from the dead, we should come to him and call him Lord. And that means we take his words very seriously. That means what we do and think and believe here has the possibility for eternal consequences. There's eternal value in what we are doing and what we are building. It should go way beyond our little fears. So I'm going to ask one of our youth to come up. They're going to help me in this next illustration. So I got this rope. This is actually an illustration I did with them a few months back. I want you to imagine that this rope, hopefully it doesn't get tangled. <laughs> it did. <laughs> All right. This rope uh, is someone's, is our life. Right? It's, it's each of our lives. Uh, and this rope, just imagine that it goes on out forever. Right? It just keeps going. And I think that this little green part right here, this is our life here on earth. And sometimes we get so wrapped up with what's going on here. We get so consumed about thinking about our jobs that we have from this little point to this little point. We're thinking about how we're going to pay out our house from here. Before we get to here, we want to have it paid off. And we get so wrapped up about our little vacation here. And all the things going on here, we're so consumed with this little part that we forget the much bigger picture. I mean, when we look at this stuff, when we think about how, how silly we look when we're consumed by this, I think we should feel pretty silly. We're so wrapped up about this that we stop thinking about this. And I don't know about you, I know I need to stop caring a lot more about this and start caring a lot more about this. Thanks, Alyssa. Uh, and all this makes me think of this, um, this I want to end on this point, this uh, magician, this talk show host, He's a writer. Um, his name is Pendulet. And he's an atheist. Uh, and he has these video blogs. He's on YouTube. Basically, he records himself and he shares his thoughts, his experiences, things going on in his life. Uh, and then he posts them and then he has uh, so other people can watch and comment and talk about it. And he shares this one particular experience of how after a show in Vegas, uh, he, he came out and greeted the audience and there was this one gentleman who complimented him. 
and just encouraged him and just, and just said how great the show was. And I had a little talk, and then eventually this man hands uh, Penn a Bible. He gives him a Bible, and he says, here, I want you to have this. I want you to read it and think about it. And he gives him a little business card, too, and says, call me. We can talk about it. And, um, and Penn explains how encouraged he was, actually, by that. How unoffended he was. Right, because what goes along with our fears and all this stuff is that uh, we live in a society that does not like to be talked about, uh, does not like talking about religion. Don't talk to me about religion. Don't, don't do it. It's offensive. But Penn really explained he was not offended. He was not threatened. He was not attacked. He actually saw that this man sincerely cared and was interested in Penn. But then he said something else. Penn says something else. And this, is, this has stuck with me. Ever since I saw this video years ago, uh, he, he basically endorsed what he called proselytizing, right? evangelism, sharing our faith. He said it's so important. He said, oh, if you really believe it, if you really think it's true that, that if being a Christian makes the difference of internally being with God or eternally being separated from God, if you really believe that, and this is what he said, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate him to not say it, to not, to not convince him? If you saw someone standing in a street and a semi-truck is about to hit him, you would scream out to them, get out of the way. You would be desperate. So how much do we Christians, do, or do we hate people, do we must hate people to not be proselytizing in everything we're doing? I think it's a pretty serious criticism, actually. I think it's, you know, we get, we're more concerned about our fears and more concerned about our, our, our little time of life here that we stop thinking about these eternal consequences. We start thinking about uh, the significance of the mission God has given us. And I see so many churches uh, out there today um, and I'm not one to rag on churches or to talk about things they're doing wrong, but there is this genuine concern I have right now, is that there's so many churches out there that are so focused on trying to figure out the next best event, the next best thing that, that the church and the staff and the pastors can do that's going to get all these people to come. I think sometimes we become so, so consumed and so, so you know, thinking that we, our mission is to get people to come to us. And I wonder if many churches out there are, are feeling discouraged or disappointed at times uh, due to the, la- the lack of success. I wonder uh, if they sound a lot like Simon did. We've been trying. We're doing all these different things. We've been out here all night. And I think Jesus would say uh, to the churches and say to all of us Christians, really, the same thing he did to them back then. Come follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Walk in my footsteps. I think we have to to start recognizing the urgency and the need before us to to, to start uh, mingling with people, associating ourselves with people, talking to people, getting outside of our church, being a church that really pushes outward. Not so that we can have bigger churches, not so that we can have more Christian friends, but because like Jesus, we should be very, very concerned about eternity. 
And so I think we need to be, um, like Jesus, constantly teaching both with our words and in our actions. That being said, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much uh, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your word, Lord, that uh, we can read and we can study and we can memorize, God. And I ask that you just challenge us. You convict us of the areas in each of our lives where we're not acting the way we're supposed to be acting. God, that you help us realize how we can better be fishers of men. God, continue to teach us and continue to challenge us and continue to to call us to be more and to do more. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this community. We pray these things in your name. Amen.